Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Today, here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is Mike Roth. I'm here today with uh, David Burkus. He is the author of a new book called The Myths of Creativity. Thanks for joining us, David. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Good. Before we get started, I'm going to tell everyone a few of the shows that are coming up. Next week is a holiday, so there won't be a new show next Friday. On January 3rd, that's Friday, first show of 2014, will be with Larry Holshatter. He is the uh, president of True Staff Staffing. They're, they do uh, recruiting and traveling nurse, traveling pharmacist. They're one of the high-growth companies here in Cincinnati. The next Friday, on the 10th of January, we're going to have Debbie Bowman from Boys Hope, Girls Hope, which is a, a foundation helps troubled youth get through school and points them in the right direction. On the 24th, I'm sorry, 17th of January, we're going to have Frank Wood. He's going to be talking about his stress reduction program and the success that he's had with it over the last couple of years. Then we're going to have a fun show on the 24th of January. We have Joe O'Gorman. He is the owner and founder of Full Throttle Carting up in Sharonville, and he's going to talk about the success story that he's had with that business, where other people have failed in that carding world. In fact, he's just going through a, a rather large expansion. Okay, here at Sandler, the Sandler Foundations course starts on Monday, January 13th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And we still have some seats available on that course. And we have a cold call camp coming up in January on January 22nd. That's eight hours where we teach people how to get beyond gatekeepers how to leave uh, one or five voicemail messages that will get at least 70% of your calls returned, and how to build three real strong scripts for uh, prospects. And uh, we'll actually have time to have each client at that cold call camp make 10 practice calls, and then we'll get a chance to uh, debrief what we heard. 
Now, David, let me tell our, our listeners about you. You're an assistant professor of management at the College of Business at Oral Roberts University, where he teaches courses on creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship and organizational development or organizational behavior. David is a, the founder and editor of LDRLB. What does that mean, David? So uh, a funny story there, and this always happens, and, and your listeners are now going to get let in on the little secret. We, we pronounce it Leader Lab, and the story behind that is true to form on uh, this thing called the originality myth that I talk about in the book. I just ran with the title Leader Lab because the domains were open, everything was open. Uh, forgot to check the trademark uh, registries. And so about two years into hosting this podcast called Leader Lab, got a very uh, strongly worded letter from a gentleman's attorney who happened to be the owner of the trademark. And so uh, we kind of scrambled and thought, okay, well, what happens if you take all the vowels out? And so uh, we took it out, LDRLB, now you look at it, you see Leader Lab, right? And that's... That's good. It's sort of the inside secret. Our listeners know you, you say at Leader Lab, but you have to kind of be in the initiated, and, and now we all are. But, yeah, that's a, it's a fun story behind that. You know you're making a dent in the universe when you get a cease and desist letter. <laughs> yes, occasionally that happens to some people in the, in the Sandler family. And how long ago, actually, did you put the book out? So the, the book launched uh, October well, the official date is October 14th. They started shipping copies on October 7th, but October of this year. So it's, it's only been about for two months or so now. Good, good. Uh, I think I saw you on one of the Sunday morning uh, TV shows. I was. I was, I was on I? Uh, CBS, CBS This Morning Saturday. Yeah, it was um, kind of a, cr- a crazy serendipitous deal, but proof that the, the messages in the book are really resonating, even even beyond the original business audience that I had it all planned for. But they, the, one of the producers at CBS had, had read a piece that talked about the book on, on uh, Slate.com and then just called us up and said, do you, want to, do you want to come to New York? You could do this weekend or the weekend after Thanksgiving. And, and literally three days later, I was on a plane to New York. It was, it was kind of crazy, but it was a, also a ton of fun. I bet it was. I bet it was. And I bet it uh, helped the sales of the book. You know, it it, uh, it it actually it had a delay in the uh, the spike. Like I was I was really wanting to check the weekly numbers, the the very week mm-hmm. after the sales, and, and nothing really happened. And then the next week, for some reason, is when we noticed the bump. And it's been it's been going really well. More important even than than sort of sales of the book to me, are it's it's getting that message out there. I, I I'm trusting that the sales will follow, getting the message out there around these ideas and helping those things uh, spread. It's they're ideas that need to catch on for sure. Sure. And and here at Sandler, we have this rule that we don't use buzzwords or three-letter acronyms or four-letter acronyms. So occasionally during the show, I may stop and say, what does that mean to uh, to stay in line with what we teach people? And David has agreed to answer questions, and we'll screen the questions during the commercial breaks. The, the number, as usual, is 646 Hang on until we get a commercial break, and then we'll uh, be able to, to talk to you and see if we can get you on the air. David is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and named an expert in residence by Creativity, Creative Oklahoma. A, I didn't even know we had something called Creative Oklahoma. We have, is that, we have is that several, an organization? We have a bunch of different states that have joined in this kind of creative nations thing, or, or what they call the National Creativity Network, and it's basically creative insert your state here and, and we're proud we actually started in Oklahoma but there's a there's a lots of other creative uh, and then insert state names and it's actually even spreading 
The other day I was talking to some folks from a nonprofit named Creative Alberta, and so it's even spreading up north, which is kind of cool. Good. Is there such a thing as Creative Ohio? I bet there is, and if I drop, there will be one soon. Okay. Uh, David is an advisor to several startups and serves on serves as the chief strategy officer of Avast Learning Systems, a web-based creativity and learning and assessment company. We'll have to go back and talk about assessments. David works on leadership, creativity, and innovation, and has been published in numerous scholarly journals and as a practitioner publications. I don't know what that means, David. Practitioner well, so you, publications. Well, so a lot, a lot of times you have you have your scholarly journals, journal of management, journal of uh, organizational behavior, et cetera, et cetera. That every article in that is read by maybe thirty people, including the author and the author's mom, right? And then you have your your, your HBRs and Forbes and in. Inside the academy, we call those practitioner publications because they're they're written specifically to the people who are in the trenches doing it. And of course, I come from this wanting to bridge the gap between scholars and practitioners, and so it drives me crazy that there are even non-practitioner journals about business, right? Um, right. But they exist, and I look at it as my job to help take some of the good ideas from those and put them into uh, resources that the practitioners, the people who are in the trenches doing it, can learn and apply. Okay, so I, I understand you were contributing writer for something called 99U. There's, there's another buzzword for you. What is 99U? So 99U is, uh, there's a company called Behance that does amazing work in, they have sort of a social network slash portfolio platform for creative professionals, graphic designers, filmmakers, photographers. And then they have an education arm that was originally called 99% taken from the idea of Thomas Edison, genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. So they write about the 99%. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you make ideas happen? And, you know, around 2008, in a place uh-huh. called Valley Park in New York, somebody stole really the popularity behind the term 99%. So they had to pivot, and they pivoted to uh, 99U, as in it's a university about the 99%. Mm-hmm. And you also uh, write for... Creativity Post. Is that like a newsletter? It's, uh, it's a website. It's a kind of structured on a similar model as the Huffington Post. It's a variety of different collaborators that are all from all disciplines, all research areas that are writing about creativity. Uh, they all sort of have this one united, or trying to build one united place for everybody's writings. Mm-hmm. And as a presenter, you've spoken on leadership and innovation to diverse audiences from entrepreneurs to Fortune 500 companies, to the United States Naval Academy, and the uh, Navy postgraduate school. Only it leads me to the question: Are are you ex Navy yourself? Uh, I am. I am not. Um, I am not. Uh, I haven't been in any branch of the service. A tremendous amount of respect from everybody from all sides. I will say that I continue to cheer Navy uh, every second uh, second Saturday in December uh, during the Army Navy game, and that has more to do with the fact that Navy has invited me to speak at, at a variety of places, and I've yet to get an invitation from Army. So you know. If you're, if for some reason you're connected to West Point and you're listening, I would love to cheer for your, your team too. But thus far, I only get invitations to work with Navy, so I've become a big uh, Navy guy. And I have a, a, some family members that have served uh, and have been uh, at Annapolis, and so we sort of always have this personal connection to uh, to the yard, to Annapolis, as it were. Sure, sure. Uh, here at Sandler, one of the things I expect to happen in 2000 and 14 is a new leadership program to come out and when it does I'll make sure you get a copy of that book and we'll have to talk about it live on the air what you think of it uh, yeah, some of it's original yeah. some of it's supposed to be original Sandler thought 
Some of it's supposed to be uh, licensed material. That's all I can say about it right now. Again, David has agreed to answer calls from our listeners. The number is 646-595-4916. Let's uh, start with an easy question here, and then we'll take a commercial break. David, what led you down the path of researching and writing about creativity? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. I, I love the uh, the no buzz words rule, and yet here I am. I'm writing a book about creativity, innovation. Both are kind of really, really, I won't say overused, but used frequency term, frequently terms right now. And I, I started as a leadership guy. I, my master's degree is in organizational behavior. My doctorate's in strategy and leadership. I uh, started out as a leadership guy and wanting to research what is it about these incredibly innovative and creative companies? What do the leaders do that presumably companies that aren't as innovative or, or go bankrupt for a lack of innovation that they aren't doing and, and where the differences lie? And, and there are differences. And the, the most creative, the most innovative companies are in line with a lot of what the psychological research says about how creativity works individually and in teams. So they are doing things differently. The thing that I never found was that they are different, as in there's, there's nothing that those other teams don't have uh, that the presumably non-creative teams lack. The difference, which begs this question of, okay, so why is there a difference if, there isn't, if the raw material everybody has to work with is the same? Why is there a difference? And, and that's what led to the book, trying to answer that question. And what I found is that in any walk of life, creativity, business, it's, it's no different. We tell ourselves stories, and then those stories reinforce the way we experience the world. And in creativity, I found a set of different stories. I call them myths, trying to evoke that kind of uh, ancient mythology about the muses. But we tell ourselves all of these stories that are affecting how we engage in the creative process. And, and some of us are telling these stories as an excuse to not have to engage in them. So it's a bit of a serendipitous path, actually. I started out as a leadership guy and then kind of just kept following it out. And, and I heard a quote the other day that uh, don't, don't try and be a thought leader, just try and see where your thoughts lead you. And, and mine have led me here thus far, which has really, really uh, been, a, it's been a great journey for sure. Good, good. We're going to take a, a short commercial break. We're going to hear from Jimmy Fox. He's going to talk about Tip Club. The next Tip Club meeting here in Cincinnati is January, Thursday, January 16th from 7.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. We just had a really good uh, Tip Club meeting here yesterday. So here's Jimmy. Hi, I'm Jimmy Fox of Tip Club. Tip Club is a professional networking organization whose members help each other succeed. We meet once per month and provide a forum where business-to-business professionals are able to connect with more desirable opportunities and build long-term strategic partnerships. I'm inviting Cincinnati Business Talk listeners to come to our free networking event. You'll have the opportunity to meet new people, share leads and referrals, and grow your business through strategic alliances. Membership in our Cincinnati group is open to only one person per specific trade or occupation. Business-to-business professionals only, please. We do not accept multi-level marketing or recruiting-driven memberships. This is our only group in Cincinnati. We'll meet on the third Thursday of the month from 7.30 to 9 a.m. at Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, 4357 Ferguson Drive, Cincinnati, Ohio. To reserve a seat, please go to www.tipclub.com and click on the Events tab at the top of the page. Then, just scroll down the list until you come to the Cincinnati event. Or you may call 800 798 
1-800-798-0270. That's 1-800-798-0270. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you at our next networking event. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with David Burkus, author of The Myths of Creativity. If someone wants to get a hold of you after the show to ask you a question or uh, contact you, how, do they, how should they do that? Yeah, so I, I've been blessed with a really unique uh, name. I, I know of one other David Burkus out there, and I don't know that he has much of a web presence. So the, the beauty of that is if you just type it into Google, it's, it's David, it's B-U-R-K-U-S, you can find a, my site is, is the first thing that pops up as well as a variety of different ways to, to get a hold of me. Um, so whatever your social network of choice is, feel free to reach out to me on that. If, if email is still your social network of choice, uh, it, it's even easier. It's just david at davidberkus.com. And, and even if they, they want to reach out to me with a question beforehand, that, that's, that's awesome. I love it. The stories that resonate with them, I'd, I'd love to hear that. Even though the book is sort of written, I'm constantly collecting stories and support around the book. And, and if after they've read it, they want to reach out to me with some other thoughts, I'm more than welcome. I love hearing it, love collecting more information, so please do. Yeah, I'm holding a copy of the book in my hand, and uh, if uh, our, our listeners um, check the book out on the web, it's got a really interesting picture of a chimpanzee, uh, Sitting next to a uh, a fellow with a, uh, a spaghetti straining calendar with some <laughs> strange antenna on it, wearing goggles, uh, with a an old fashioned uh, meter in between them, and a pen in front of the chimpanzee. Uh, <laughs> is there any meaning behind the cover of the book, uh, David? Man, I wish there was. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think I could I could I can confabulate. I can make something up here about. Um, I, I think a lot of times we don't know necessarily what the right question is and where we're going to get the right answer, et cetera. But the, the truth is, um, to your, actually this jives with Sandler and the idea of j- trying to not use buzzwords or acronyms. You, when you write a book about creativity, about innovation, there are, there are a lot of books out in the market. And so there are a couple rules. And my editor is a, is a total genius. And she said, rule number one, we will not have a book cover with a light bulb on it. Um, or any iteration of a light bulb. And so we, we drafted up a bunch of different options. And a lot of times when you, when you are running through the book design process, you get about 10 different options. You pick which ones you like, and we, we iterate from there. And, and I got two, and they told me that everybody liked option one of the two. And this cover was option one. And I opened it up, and I said, oh, I'm on board with everybody else. This is, this is awesome. This is, if you're going to write a book about creativity, you have to have a creative cover. And so um, there it is. Is that something that you got out of stock art or something you actually made up? I believe it's something they probably that the, some photographer that was probably on a stock website somewhere. Is, I, have, I have not traced it down enough. I know that um, I know that the 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 photo was done. I think by a guy named Andrew Rich, and I think he's on Getty Images or iStock or somewhere like that. It, he's actually an awesome photographer. It's kind of funny because he has this whole line of these sort of. Um, monkey and well-dressed children sort of photos that I'm finding actually quite interesting. I, I have a different one um, as my desktop background right now just to sort of fit around with the theme. It's a really, really cool uh, cool theme for sure. Good. Let's go, let's go into some of the, uh, the, the myths of creativity. Uh, and, and you touched on something when we were talking a little bit earlier that, that rang a chord for me uh, about the BlackBerry company, which uh, 
had a lot of originality and creativity in creating the first smartphone that uh, had an email punch to it. And when the, when the market changed around them, it seemed to me like they failed to, to change for way too many years. And now they're either going to be sold or go bankrupt. What do you think of something like that, a company that comes up with a great innovative idea and, and rushes to the front of the marketplace and then fails to continue to innovate? Yeah, I, I think there's, um, I mean, they're, they're a textbook example of what Clay Christensen originally coined as the innovator's dilemma, this idea that uh, every big company can only move and pivot and change so quickly. And a lot of times they even, uh, they're so big that new opportunities that are on the horizon don't necessarily seem like that much of a threat to them and don't seem like it's worth their time to invest in. And so um, I, I don't talk a lot about BlackBerry in the book, but I talk about a company with an exact similar fate, and that is Kodak. Uh, very few mm -hmm. people know Kodak invented the digital camera, right, just like BlackBerry really sort of refined the idea of the smartphone. Uh, what, what Kodak didn't really see at the time, though, they had people in, uh, working on this project to invent a digital camera. The pixelation was awful. And mm -hmm. so the, the managers said, no, the future is still in film. Why would people pay more money for a camera that has worse resolution? What they didn't see, and this is the innovative dilemma, what they didn't see is that if the market moves, that small little opportunity gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so it's the innovative companies that, that BlackBerry was at the time that take advantage of something that starts out small and eventually grows in the market to be this big thing. But then once they become big, they are just as susceptible to the innovative dilemma the next time around. And so you see, especially with innovative companies that take advantage of an opportunity in the market, they can still fail to see the next opportunity in the market. And at, at the heart of that, I think, I go a little bit further than Christensen in the innovative dilemma, at the heart of that is I think we have an internal bias against new and innovative ideas. We we love, we say we love new ideas, but the research supports that, especially in a period of uncertainty, we like the status quo more, and we cling to our old status quo, old experiences. We use that to define what is useful about and what's practical and what has potential. And the challenge of that is that we don't have to build a competitive advantage for 10 years ago. We have to build a competitive advantage for the next 10 years. And that's a really hard thing to do if we keep using past experiences and status quos as our measuring stick, new ideas are always going to fall up short, and that's to our detriment, not to the ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like uh, the book Who Moved My Cheese. That seems like it's been was on the bestseller list for over 10 years uh, with a really simple thesis <laughs> that yeah. some of us don't want to change. Yeah, and, and, and I would say a, a book that's been out for 10 years, really simple thesis, everybody has probably gotten it as a gift and maybe even re-gifted it, et cetera, and yet we still have a, a, so many of us that struggle with the same problem. It takes a long time. It, Who Moved My Cheese? And, and a lot of these books are great examples of you can have a great idea, but getting it to spread widely throughout the market, getting it to, to interact with this bias is even harder, even when the bias is about change, right? It's hard to change people's ideas about change. It seems like it took BlackBerry uh, seven years to get HTML email. Uh, which was one of the primary reasons I got rid of my BlackBerry, even though it was a nice phone. Yeah, uh, and I think I think the idea of opening up the platform, all of that kind of stuff, still um, a little hesitant to do, right? So perhaps you can you can give our our listeners your definition uh, in the next four minutes or less of what creativity is. <laughs> so for. 
four minutes or less. Okay, well, let me preface this by saying that if you, if you, I think if you take ten different researchers and, and innovators and designers and, and creative folk, you take a group of ten people, you put them in a room and ask them that, the question you just asked me, you'll get 11 answers. And I have no idea where the 11th will come from, but everybody uh, is very nuanced in their definition. But what, what I rely on is there's a common theme throughout it all. There are two words that I think run through almost everyone's definition of creativity, and that is new and useful. Uh, for an idea to be creative, it has to be new or new to that field, new to that no, domain. So it might not be a new product, but a new business model. Uh, and then it also has to be useful. It has to be profitable. It has to be practical. It has to provide some value. Otherwise, it's, it's not worth it. Newness for newness sake doesn't really pay off. Right? It could be fun mm -hmm. a little bit, but at really the heart of creativity and innovation is this idea that it is both new and useful. And as, as we were just talking about with that bias, that can be a really hard thing to accept because new ideas are easy and useful ideas are easy, but ones that are new and useful are quite hard. Right, right. And uh, in your book you talk a little bit about uh, Steve Jobs at, at Apple. Uh, the creativity uh, that I saw there was putting together a new format of digital music, a, a totally integrated player with, with an iTunes store, and the, the miracle was getting the music companies to agree to sell their albums a song at a time for 99 cents mm -hmm. and, and take a gigantic profit to Steve Jobs. Uh, would you say that was creative? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think that's a great example of it wasn't necessarily a new product. It was a new configuration. It was a new business model. So it doesn't have to mm -hmm. be totally out of the box, brand, you know, un, unseen before thing to be an expression of creativity. It just has to be new to that field. And true to form, and it took Jobs a very long time to convince the record companies to go along with this idea, to, to make the connection that kids are downloading the music song by song for free so we can sue the children or we can change our business model and deliver it the way we want. Uh, shouldn't have been a hard concept to, to sell to these folks, but Jobs was the one that saw it. He was the one that built the model around it. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the book Blue Ocean, uh, I'm sure you've read that, it, it seemed like, like Jobs saw the Blue Ocean in selling music digitally uh, in small increments. Yeah, I, and I think there's a huge connection between the need for creativity in organizations as a precursor to building on blue ocean strategies. It's really hard to use old thinking to find new oceans to compete in, right? We need innovative new thinking to be able to even figure that out. And, and Jobs is a great example of that. As I mean, I, I love going to them, so I love that blue ocean strategy uses the Cirque du Soleil example, which is a new way of thinking about a very old concept. Right, right. Uh, again, David has uh, agreed to answer questions from our listeners. The number is 646-595-4916. Uh, and we're going to listen to a couple of Sandler commercials. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. At the first sign of trouble, there are three types of business leader. The first type of leader is like a turtle. He pulls his head and tail in and hides in his shell. Turtles hunker down, just trying to survive. The second type of leader is an opportunist. They're like eagles. Eagles spread their wings and take advantage of the winds. They catch the storm wind and rise to new heights. The third group, between turtles and eagles, are called turkeys. Turkeys are average and anxious. They huddle together and move. They never saw. However, turkeys are easy prey for those who seize the opportunity and soar. If someone in your industry goes out of business, are you going to get the business? The question is, which type of leader are you? 
Will you seize the opportunities to take market share and grow, or will your fate be like the turkeys? If you're serious about growth, call me to arrange a confidential meeting, 513-646-6523, or check our website at rothconsulting.net. Hi, this is Mike Roth, founder of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. You've heard our commercials about sales and sales management, but you haven't made the call for some reason. Maybe you're having your best year ever. Maybe you think a sales development company won't work in your industry. You're different. I wish I had a nickel for every time I heard that. Maybe you're afraid that if you called, you'd buy something. If you're happy with all your sales and profits, and believe you have all the answers or simply don't see yourself investing in yourself or your people, then don't make the call. We have nothing for you. For over 20 years, we've been coaching, mentoring, business owners, and sales professionals who are serious about their careers. So if you believe that Sandler Sales Training might make you better, faster, meaner, and stronger, call me at 513-646-6523 or register for our next open house. Roth & Associates, the most experienced sales trainer in Cincinnati. You can check us at www.rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with David Burkus. Uh David, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, jobs as a creative guy or the creative force behind Apple. Um, do you think that since he's gone that Apple's creativity is going to be going down or away and, and they'll lose the market momentum? So uh, I, have to, I guess I would have to give a legal disclaimer about stock advice, et cetera, on this one. But I don't look to see a uh, – I, I don't see a big difference on the horizon. I mean, a- Apple's – one of Apple's big secrets, I think, is in their approach to design as having a role in the entire technology process, which I don't see going away anytime soon. I, I think, interestingly enough, a lot of people point to more recent product launches by Apple and say, oh, they've lost their, their thunder, there's not as many disruptive uh, products. But we, we've kind of compressed the timeline. There actually is about five to seven years between each new sort of amazing uh, product that Apple's put out since Jobs returned. And so if you, if you look at it through that, we do need to see something pretty revolutionary from them in like the next year uh, or so to stay on pace with where they were before. And so I, I'm choosing to sort of punt and defer judgment until that. If, if they stay on pace with where they are before, then clearly they've tapped into that process. But you know, the, the other thing is Jobs was a meticulous planner, and I believe, though, you know, you can't, they're not public about it. You know, I believe that before he passed, the, the Apple 5, 5S, 6, 7, 7CS, whatever, I think there were a lot of different models that had been at least planned out, and they might still be figuring mm-hmm. out how to do it. But I think they had a much longer-term plan um, than anything, uh, any, anything that we might see on a quarter-to-quarter basis. Sure, sure. Uh, in your book, you talk about uh, this uh, fellow, Dean Keith Simonton, uh, from the University of California, Davis, and his uh, theory, uh, thesis. Uh, can you explain a little bit about, about what, what his thesis of creativity is? There's, there's this idea in a lot of fields that the older, the more expertise you get, the, the more likely it is you're going to come up and solve incredible problems. And and what Dean Keith Simonton um, researched and found out is that actually a lot of people's creative production rate is a bit of an inverted U. So there's a joke in physics that if you don't do Nobel Prize winning work by the time you're 30, you should just retire and stop trying to be an impactful researcher. And, and 
So truth is actually pretty in line with that. If we look at the average age, it, it hovers pretty close to that. Uh, Albert Einstein won the Nobel Prize when he was 46, but for a paper that was published when he was 26. And what, what Simonton is looking at is there is this inverted U to the creative output of individuals. And, and at the core of it is you have two different rates, in essence. You have an ideation rate, the rate with which you come up with new ideas. And you have an elaboration rate, which is the number of those ideas that you choose to expound upon. And as we get older, the ideation rate could actually increase, but the elaboration rate goes down. The elaboration rate that we, the ideas that we come up with that we try out and we actually test goes down. And the reason we theorize is that people are dismissing ideas as they're generating them. So there's a blessing and a curse to expertise because you can come up with more ideas but you're less willing to take a risk on those new ideas. And I think this actually speaks to what we were talking about, even in companies. I, don't, I should preface this. I don't have any psychological or uh, strategy research to support this idea. But I think you see something similar in companies where we're less willing to try out new products or new combinations of products and services the longer and more established we are because we're so true to what our expertise lies in and, and taking uh, new directions is such a big risk. And, and it's the people that are willing to forego that risk and just try out lots of different stuff that, to be sure, they fail often, but every once in a while they hit it out of the park. And, and those are the people that have managed to keep their creative productive rate from not being uh, this inverted U-shape. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So uh, would you say Howard Hughes was a creative individual? Um, you know, so again, we go to this idea of uh, creativity, novel and useful. And I think if we look at, at uh, Howard Hughes's pinnacle, maybe his magnum opus, the, that wooden plane that is sitting uh, in a museum somewhere because it never really flew very often. Maybe the usefulness isn't necessarily there. Once. Right? But, but certainly once, the novelty so is, and, and he proved himself in some different fields. So I, I won't discount him. And, and the other thing is I think everybody has the potential to be creative, right? It's just a question of who bothers to take the risks, and he definitely was a risk taker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about a couple of the, uh, the myths in, in your book. Uh, what, what does the myth of the expert uh, mean? So the, the myth of the expert ties in with what we were talking about with uh, Dean Keith Simonton, and, and the expert myth is, is putting too much faith in those experts to solve these incredibly sort of creative problems. And, and the, the remedy, the, the thing that's really useful, I find, in the, in the chapter about the expert myth is that it's not fate. You're not doomed to experience a decrease in your creative productivity as you get older um, because uh, really all you have to do is keep yourself having a beginner's mindset in different fields. And uh, my, some of my friends that work in the design community call this being T-shaped. If you think about your knowledge and your skill set, you want it to resemble the capital letter T, where you have a deep knowledge like the vertical part of a capital letter T, but you're also building a horizontal working knowledge of lots of other domains. Because the most disruptive ideas, the most um, profitable innovations, those are the things that either migrate from somewhere on the periphery that you bring into your deep domain of knowledge, or those come from people who had a deep domain of knowledge in one place and then knew something at the periphery at the horizontal part of the, the capital letter T and applied it there and found that since it wasn't already in that domain, it was incredibly useful. And you look at, in the book, I look at a gentleman by the name of Paul Erdos, a mathematician who managed to do this because he was a, an intellectual and a physical nomad. He, he published more peer-reviewed papers than anyone else in, in any science, including mathematics, and he did it by 
constantly moving from facility to facility and sometimes inside the homes of other mathematicians he'd collaborate with. He would say things like, my brain is open, and he'd come in and learn with them for a year, two years, uh, collaborate with them, and then he'd move on to somewhere else that, that uh, pursued him. And, and I look at a more modern-day uh, Paul Erdos, I look at as Elon Musk, someone who has a deep knowledge of physics and economics, but the range of places that he is applying them is, is quite diverse. And because of that, he's making a really big impact in, in the world, in business, but in the larger world as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in your chapter in the book, you, you talk about the incentive myth. Is it possible for companies to incentivize their employees to be creative? So the, the, I should say this, is, this one's a really delicate one because this one is a, is a, is a myth because the, the idea is quite simple, right? We had Frederick Taylor who told us that if you want stuff done, measure it. If you want it done well, monetize it, incentivize it, et cetera. And that idea stuck around for a really long period of time even as the nature of our work shifted from root mechanized monotonous work to open-ended work that took a lot of creativity and problem-solving, et cetera. And, and Taylor's ideas kind of break down at that level. But there is some research that supports the idea that incentives and extrinsic motivators can, um, can work if they're in line with what somebody is intrinsically motivated to do already. And so what you see a lot of companies doing is structuring uh, structuring themselves similar to what Google used to use, this 20% time concept, or uh, 3M actually invented the idea with 15% time. But in the, in the tech community, you, you see it more often in things like people, Hack Week. week. Some people so might not know what the 15% time was. Yeah, let me, let me, I was, I was going to cover all of them, but all, all, what all of them, they all have all of diff, these different names, 20% time, Hack Week, etc. What they all share in common is all of them say, we're going to give you a set period of time in your weekly schedule, in your, in your calendar year schedule with us, and during that set period of time, work on any project you want. And the only requirement is it can't be a part of your day-to-day. So it has to be something you're intellectually curious about and, and intrinsically motivated to pursue. And at the end of the set period of time, report back to us on what you found. And some, some people use it to fix problems that have been bugging them. Some people use it to try and develop whole new ideas for products and services. In the book, I talk about uh, Square, the payment processing company. They do hack weeks. And one guy used one of the hack weeks to develop a banana phone. He literally took apart a, a cell phone and inserted it inside a hollowed-out, dried-out banana peel so that it looked like a banana, but it could make calls like a telephone. And well, you think, okay, what's the ROI on that? What's the practicality of that? Uh, I mean, number one, it's really quite cool. But what you get out of that, you don't, you, they're not selling banana phones on the marketplace, but you get a, a person who took it as an opportunity to learn about the inner workings of a cell phone and something he was intrinsically motivated to do. And until he had that creative project, he didn't have the opportunity to pursue it. So I think there's an ROI just there from letting your people learn. Mm-hmm. Make, make, make some degree of sense. Uh, so, uh, our listeners, if you want to call in, number is 646-595-4916. Uh, you know, clearly at a place like uh, Apple, Steve Jobs is shown as uh, the innovative uh, inventor of record. Uh, is it true that most great innovations come from one person like Edison or, or Jobs? <laughs> Yeah, n- not not in the slightest, right? So we, we talk about Jobs. We never talk about Steve Wozniak enough, right? And, and even in the second iteration of Steve Jobs at Apple, 
until recently, we didn't talk about Johnny Ive enough, right? And, and the truth is that we love these stories of individual creatives, but a lot of them are more fiction than fact. Uh, Thomas Edison, you, you also said, Thomas Edison, uh, I, I hate to ruin this, didn't invent the light bulb. He was the 23rd person to invent a light bulb. He invented a commercially viable light bulb, and for that he, he deserved all of the wealth and, and acclaim that he got. But the other thing is he didn't invent it by himself. He, his greatest invention, in my opinion, was a facility he called Menlo Park. And it was basically a facility he built, a workshop he built, and invited lots of different people to. There were about 15 people, they called themselves the muckers, that all worked on different projects there, sometimes all working on the same project, sometimes working on various different projects. And they traded ideas. And pretty early on, they figured out that the marketplace for some reason, rewarded Edison, this man, myth, legend, more than it did the idea of having 15 people work on the problem. So even they began to see this power of our, our one, our, for some reason we have a hero mentality and we wanted to see one hero in what was really a team sport in, in the case of the muckers. And so a lot of them just said, hey, if we can make more money letting him get all the credit, let's do it and let's make that money. And the only way you would know, besides the photos we have of the muckers and the description of Menlo Park, the only way you'd really know it is that their names are on the patents too. Their names just aren't on a lot of the marketing material. And for that reason, we, we forget them a lot of times. But overall, creativity is a team sport. Good. We're going to take a uh, commercial break and if you have any uh, questions for David, be sure to call in 646-595-4916. When you hear about a typical sales training program, does it usually involve a one- or two-day seminar where some alleged guru passes down what he claims are the secrets to making sales? At Roth & Associates, I'm the most experienced sandless sales trainer in Cincinnati. We recognize that truisms and motivating speeches aren't enough to arm sales teams with the tools they need for success. Sales is a hard business. Typical sales training can only provide typical and disappointing results. At Roth & Associates, we use the Sandler methodology of continual reinforcement and ongoing training seminars along with individual coaching to ensure victory in the world of sales. We've been doing it here in Cincinnati for over 15 years. You won't fail because I won't let you. Roth & Associates, 513-646-6523. 513 513- 646-6523 on the web at rothconsulting.net finding power in reinforcement Hi, I'm Eric Meyer with Sandler Training here to talk about Rule 44 If your foot hurts you're probably standing on your own toe Here's an example You go through your proposal with the prospect Everything looks great. Your prospect is responding in a positive fashion to the information that you brought to the table. Um, everyone feels good. You wrap up and move forward for the order, only to find that the prospect says that they have to take your information to a committee. Now, at this point, you can get angry with the prospect. Why didn't they bring that up? Why didn't they tell you that they were going to have to take this information to somebody else before they could make a decision? Well, it's your job to ask the right questions to uncover roadblocks and potential problems ahead of time so that you don't find yourself scrambling at a future date when it's already too late. So take responsibility when the prospect brings up new problems and challenges. If you ask the right questions ahead of time, you can diffuse the situation before it's too late. 
And next time you're faced with the situation, the results will be positive. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with David Burkus, the author of The Myths of Creativity. I assume that's available on uh, Amazon, right, David? Oh, yeah. A- Amazon, IndieBound, BNN, where- wherever you want to find a book, we- you can find it. Good, good. Is it also available as a e-reader book? Yep, as a as a uh, an e-book in all versions, and even as an audio book. Although, unfortunately, I didn't get to do the narration on it. Um, but the guy they they use is, is probably better than I would have been as a first timer, anyway. So, uh, but yeah, even as an audio book for for those, especially. I mean, I when I was in sales uh, in a prior life, I used to love audio books, and so I pushed for it and made sure, hey, we got to make sure there's an audio version of this. Right. When Salem brings out a book, it usually takes a year for the audio book to arrive, which is a problem since uh, my discovery is most salespeople uh, prefer to listen to a book as opposed to reading a book so they don't have time to read 20 books a year, but they, they could listen to 20 books a year because there's so much drive time involved in the job. Yeah, uh, I, used to, I used to quote unquote read more when I was a sales rep than I do now as an academic, and it's for that reason. It's because I had so much windshield time to read during... Uh, let's talk for a moment about uh, brainstorming. I was introduced to this uh, uh, back in California and when I left Hughes as a consultant. Uh, we were told about uh, Buckminster Fuller and the way he created ideas was filling a room with cork boards and putting three-by-five cards up on the board and uh, no idea was rejected and that, that was the way you got creative. Uh, in fact, that's the method that that Sandler used to create uh, the Sandler Sales Management Program. We put 12 of us in a room uh, for two days, and we put 350 of those cards up on the wall, and later it was reduced to about 300 uh, topics that the management program covered. Uh, what's your feeling about brainstorming as a myth? So I, I think there's a, there's a couple elements to this myth behind brainstorming, and, and the first is that most people who use the term are not doing what its inventor uh, wanted it to be used for. So it's, it's hard to think. We use the term so often now, it's hard to think of it as having an inventor, but it does. A gentleman by the name of Alex Osborne was the first person to sort of coin this term. And he used it to describe a process really similar to the process you just described. And, and the idea was he was a principal at BBDO, which is a big-level advertising firm, and he said, here's what we do. And chief among those ideas was, as you said, that no idea is a a bad idea thing. But I think the real myth of of brainstorming is we've taken it and kind of abused it and misused it so much that we think that brainstorming is all we need to do to come up with a great idea. So we go into a room, we hand somebody a whiteboard marker, or we hand everybody a pad of Post-it notes or three-by-five cards, and we say, let's generate lots and lots of ideas. But very rarely do we ever think about the question that happens afterwards. What do we do with all of those ideas? Right? What happens mm-hmm. to them afterwards? If, if all you want to do is generate a list of ideas, it works great. If you want to arrive at a, at a product, at a, at a market-ready product, at a new project idea, at a, at a good, a truly creative idea, there's a larger process you need to be plugged into. And it starts before you go into that room with a decent amount of research, making sure you're, you're asking the right question. And then even after mm. the brainstorming session, there's still some work to be done combining the ideas, refining the ideas, even taking some of them and testing them out in the, in the market, learning the lessons of that, prototyping them, using those lessons to refine them. 
And then eventually we arrive at the end of this process at a, at a full product. But I think too often people say, oh, we have a problem. Let's go brainstorm our solutions. And the solutions don't walk out of that room fully formed. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. And unfortunately, I think the reason so many of us almost have a bad taste in our mouth when we hear the term brainstorming is because that's all we're doing. We're walking to, into a room and then we're, we're pinning, we're looking at just one idea, circling and saying, let's run with that. And when that one idea doesn't work, inevitably it won't, we don't view that, it not working, as a part of a learning process. Or even if we take several ideas, we don't view the initial exposure to the market that we did from when we took those ideas out of the room and applied them. We view those as failures, and so we say, oh, brainstorming failed. No, those failures are opportunities to learn, and they're part of a larger process of creating. And, and the design community, they use, after brainstorming comes prototyping, and they're religious about this idea that you no idea survives its first contact with the user, right? No, and no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. Or I like Mike Tyson said it, everybody's got a plan and then they get hit, right? And so what brainstorming does is it's great at helping put together the plan at the forefront, but we need to get it, the idea out there and let it be refined and developed before we really have the genius of this larger process. What do you think of some of these uh independent creativity meeting centers that, that have sprung up around the country. Uh, meeting, meeting rooms with uh, couches and coffee tables, toys and, and games, as opposed to the typical conference room. Can they really foster an environment of creativity? I, I, so there is, some, there is some research that supports the idea of the environment has an effect on your ability to generate ideas. Uh, I, I think the problem that, from a business standpoint, that a lot of them are devoid of is that alongside of that, we're basically trying to recreate the kindergarten environment, and then in the process of recon reconfiguring that kindergarten environment, we're trying to say, okay, just like a kindergartner, everyone gets along. Well, I have a two-year-old son, and I can tell you, he does not get along with everybody. There's conflict there, right? And, and the boardroom, I think, people look at it and say, oh, the boardroom, the conference room, that's where conflict happens, so we can't be creative. We have to go to a different place. And the truth is that conflict actually breeds innovation. It breeds creativity. If you have, if you have two different people who have divergent perspectives on an idea, on a product, on a service, that's a good thing. And what that, what that is called is conflict. The, the lesson is keeping conflict from being personal, which is what I think a lot of those creativity centers are trying to do is, is – flush conflict out entirely so that no one gets their feelings hurt during the creative process. And that's a worthy goal, but we still need some level of conflict over the ideas to push them further, to refine them further, to make them better. Mm -hmm. uh, let's move ahead a little bit and talk about the cohesiveness myth of creativity. What did you really mean by that in the book? So in, in the cohesiveness, is, ironically, is, is exactly that, this belief that to be creative we have to go back to this happy-go-lucky, everyone gets along, we don't have casual Friday, we have casual everyday type work environments. And, and I've tried to find, actually tried to find those environments in really creative places, and I didn't find it. I found places that look zany and fun and like no one is uh, arguing and like everyone is cohesive. But then in those, inside those companies, there were actually people who were looking to build ways to have conflict as a part of their creative process all the time. In the book, I look at, at Pixar, which I, if you've ever seen their campus, if you've ever sort of seen a behind-the-scenes video of their process, it looks zany and fun, but the truth is they have conflict baked into their very process. They have regular sessions where people critique the films that are in progress and, and tear them apart. 
And then they do this really cool thing to keep it from being personal that they call plussing, which is we're going to have conflict, I'm going to criticize your idea, but then I'm going to plus it, I'm going to add to it. And I'm not allowed to criticize, even make a positive comment without also giving you, here's my suggestion for what to do. So the idea isn't that we're always cohesive. The idea is that we, we conflict, but we conflict in the service of a greater project. And we do that by always adding on to the ideas that we're being presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the limited time that we have left, about five minutes, uh, let's talk a, a little bit about the constraint, the myth of constraint. Uh, what, what does that mean? So when I talk to a lot of people, I, I hear, oh, I'd love to be more creative. Assuming I can get them to, let me preface, assuming I can get them to really agree with the statement that everyone is creative, the next thing that people say a lot is, oh, I'd love to be creative, but I'm just so constrained. If I had more money, if I had more time, if my organization supported me, all of these other things, then I would be able to, to express myself more. And, and that's, the, that's the heart of the constraints myth. There's a myth out there that creativity is one's total freedom and it wants to be set free. And the truth is that creativity loves constraints. Um, G.K. Chesterton said it, I think, the best, is that all art consists of limitation, and the most beautiful part of every painting is the frame, right, because it structures it. And, and when we're thinking about business, and we're thinking about creativity and innovation inside of a company, we need constraints. We need cost constraints, physical constraints, et cetera, because they help us understand the problem. And until we know we have found our constraints, we don't really understand the problem we're trying to solve. And so creativity loves constraints. The psychological research actually supports that running into obstacles, running into constraints, will actually cause your brain to sort of jumpstart its creative potential. Um, and, and really, actually, I can prove this because I, I describe this process. I think everybody has had this. When you have to write a letter or uh, an article or a memo, a white paper, whatever it is, you open up Microsoft Word and there's nothing on the page, right? And, and you just stare at that cursor and it blinks at you and there's nothing at the page. And, and you, you know why it's called a cursor because you just want to curse at it because it's blank, right? <laughs> and you, you can't come up with ideas. But if I give you a structure in which to write and I say, oh, you're going to write ten things, you're going to write five things, here's a, here's a format that your, your script is going to have this, your memo is going to have these five things in it, I can actually get you to express yourself much more creatively inside that constraint than I could if I gave you a blank sheet of paper. Yeah, I was uh, at a client's uh, place yesterday uh, working with his telemarketing team uh, in a problem area. And after listening to two or three of the telemarketers, uh, in theory, getting trapped uh, by their own words, uh, I went over to one of the newest telemarketers and listened to what she was doing. And she had taken three different disjointed pieces of script, blended them all together with a little bit of a story, and she had a fantastic idea that was working beautiful. So uh, she wasn't the newest, but one of the newer ones, and she came up with a creative idea, which I suggested we take to every one of the the ten people on the team. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Working inside the constraints of what works in new ways. It's it's amazing, isn't it? Sure, sure. David, we're just about uh, out of time here. I want to thank you for uh, being on the show. I'm going to uh, send you a copy of uh, Sandler's first book, You Can't Teach a Kid to Ride a Bike at a Seminar. And, uh, and frankly, we're going to bring out a new edition of that one in 2014. But, uh, again, thanks for being with us uh, here on the show. And uh, do you have any last uh, comments or suggestions about creativity for our listeners? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, thank yeah. you so much for um, so for helping me on and helping me spread these ideas. You know, we started with this concept of the innovator's dilemma that sometimes the the bigger you get, the more experience you get. It's harder to see those new ideas. And, and I know you don't you write a book because you want to present new ideas, new concepts to the world. And so I'm just so appreciative of uh, you allowing me to do that on that platform. And and just want to encourage everybody, whether it's mine or anybody else's. A book on creativity. Let's get the idea that anybody can be creative. Let's get that to spread, and let's get the usefulness of creativity in all domains to spread. It's an idea whose time has come, and let's get it to spread. Good. Thanks again for being uh, with us today, David. Uh, Scott, why don't you take it away? Thanks for listening. This program is the property of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at Mike Roth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.